Well, good morning again. Uh, if you were here with us last week, um, you'll know that my voice is a vast improvement from what it was last Sunday. Um, thankfully, I didn't have to preach, but this week I do. Uh, there's still a few creaky floorboards left in, in my voice, and I haven't been able to talk very long without going into a coughing fit, but I have a cough drop in my mouth, uh, so I may sound funny because of that too. And Ben is going to be Johnny on the spot over there with the mute button. If I break into a, a loud cough, right, you'll be able to just mute me instantly, I'm sure. Um, but we are going through um, a series during uh, the season of Lent called The Scandal of the Cross, and we're looking at some of the metaphors and the images and the ways that Scripture talks about the atonement. That is what happened on the cross. Why did Jesus die? And you may not be aware of it, but there are lots of images, lots of different descriptions that the Bible gives us for the cross. And so we're going to look at a couple of those that maybe get overlooked uh, in some Lenten seasons and in some Easter sermons to hopefully bring out something of the, not just the relevance of the cross, but the outright scandal of the cross. And so this morning, we're going to do that by looking at Mark 15. And this is our gospel reading. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. And it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we get started. Dear Lord, these are your people. They are your sheep. They are people that you love. They are people whose needs you know so much better than I. 
And they are people that you care for much deeper and more thoroughly than I ever could. And so, Father, they need to hear your words, not mine. But, Father, as it is, they are stuck to hear, with, hear from a fellow traveler. So I, I pray that in that my sins and my weaknesses, my inabilities, my idiosyncrasies, all of them, uh, all, I share them with all of these people, that we are in the same mess and the, sh- the same human predicament. And in that, I pray that as I've wrestled with this text, and I pray that my wrestling with it would be, be beneficial for those gathered, not because of my insight, but because you, Holy Spirit, can take these words and make them your own. And Lord, I pray that you would do just that. Lord, lead us and guide us and let us see ourselves through the lens of your crucifixion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The um, 1950s and 1960s, as you certainly know, were a time of great civil unrest. And sociologists and psychologists were trying out all sorts of experiments and theories to try and figure out how do we get people to live together without prejudice and without racism and without fear, how do we continue this thing called the American experiment, which by then had become known as a melting pot, and yet great segregation and great fear and lots of violence. And the so-called human relations movement rose up, and they began to run experiences on the premise that contact between isolated groups increased tolerance and understanding. And this seems sort of common sense, right, that for us, when you think about writing an email to someone, it's much easier to be direct. You may even be a little bit more direct and more, uh, you know, angry or mean-spirited in your tone than you would if you were sitting across the table from that person. It's easier to hold very totalizing negative views towards someone that you don't know than someone that you're in relationship with and you see them as a real human person, well, in 1954, a researcher named Muzaffar Sharif, I honestly have no idea how to pronounce that name. I looked it up, and it wasn't, didn't give me the, spell, the pronunciation, but it's Muzaffar Sharif, I believe. And he put this to the test, this idea, in a Lord of the Flies type of experiment. And what he did is he recruited 22 boys of the same age, and he sent them to a camp, like a wilderness camp. And he divided them half down the middle, 11 and 11, and put them on two different buses. And they were allowed to develop sort of a group identity. They were allowed to write songs about their group, and they were allowed to come up with names for their group. One was the Eagles, and the other was the Rattlers. Well, they didn't know this, but when they got to camp, they were slowly allowed to recognize that there was another group there as well. So 22 boys in two different cabins having arrived on two different buses, and they realize that they're not the only ones there. Well, what, what happens? Well, all of a sudden, almost immediately, they begin to assign derogatory names towards the other busload of boys, the other cabin. They uh, begin to break out in fights. They sing terrible songs about one another. They burn the other camp's flags. They uh, turn up, turn over their living quarters and make a mess in the other cabin when the other boys are gone. 
not just as practical jokes, but because they had come to believe that their bus, their cabin, was superior to the other ones. Now, what did the researchers say? In fact, they had to to stop the experiment because it had gotten so bad and so violent. They were worried about a real Lord of the Flies experience. And so what they concluded was that division alone was enough to trigger prejudice, that there didn't have to be any discernible, tangible difference between the groups other than the fact that they were on different buses and in different cabins. These boys were all from similar backgrounds and similar ages. And they found out also that the boys adopted exclusionary group identifications with only the flimsiest of pretexts. They just happened to have been selected to be put on a different bus than the person that was in the other cabin. Now, this experiment is a shorter version of a longer story. A story that sometimes seems like the only story, and that is how we tend to construct our personal, spiritual, moral identities over against some other person or group or other. And it works best if it's something or someone out there, some group that we're not a part of, and the list of possibilities is long. Corporate America, fundamentalism, big government, big pharma, the gun lobby, Donald Trump, or Bernie Sanders. Maybe there's one person in Portland who doesn't like him. But we all can define ourselves against these people out there that are different from us. They can be impersonal ideas or corporate entities, but we also do this towards people that are close to us. You see the way that your sibling parents their children, and you think, I would never do that either be so lenient or so strict, depending upon what your philosophy of parenting is. How is it that your brother-in-law always brings the conversation back to himself? What a narcissist. I can't imagine being so self-focused and self-important. How can your friend not acknowledge the superiority of your theological system? I hate that one. Often, we don't seem to know how to feel good about ourselves unless we define our goodness over against someone else's badness or just lesserness. Well, how does Jesus' crucifixion help us? Does it help us? Is his story any different? And don't be too quick to say yes, because oftentimes it seems like the church is the most against institution around not only towards the world outside, but towards each other. Churches and even whole denominations have been founded on being more pure and more right, being against someone else than the the church or denomination down the street. In other words, people have used the story of Jesus as if it's the same story and not something different entirely. As if Jesus, when he comes to earth, when he is incarnate, when he goes to the cross, it's as if he is against something. He comes to show us the good way, the right path of the way, path to God, versus the path of the hypocritical religious leaders. You've heard this theme before, right? A lot from this pulpit. He comes to bring the way of the peace of his kingdom against the power of the Roman Empire. 
He comes to bring his way of holiness and faithfulness against the way of unbelief and unfaithfulness. He comes to promote the weak and the poor against the privileged and the powerful. Now, I'm not trying to trick you because these themes do exist, and you've heard them again and again as we've read and preached from the Bible because they're all there. But don't you see? If we use Jesus just to choose better sides, it would just be a more enlightened version of the very same human story that we are all living by. But in the moment that crystallizes for Jesus the reason that he comes, the reason that he is incarnate, his vision for humanity that Mark chronicles here, in that moment... He doesn't seek to unify the us's against the them's, even if the us's are the weak and the spiritual and the faithful. You see, Jerusalem is packed with people. They're mobs. These crowds have gathered waiting to see what's going on with this rabbi. What is his story going to turn out to be? Is he the Messiah? Is he the hope for one? Is he the one that will liberate God's people from their oppressors? And Jesus could have easily followed that thread. He could have easily fulfilled that narrative and stoked the flames of rebellion, unifying the crowds against the hated Romans. And history would have looked very favorably upon him, the one who liberated the weak people from the powerful oppressors. We love those stories. And Jesus could have played that tune. But this isn't Jesus' story at least not at that level. It's not the story of God unifying God's people against an other. That would have been an interesting story, but not a new story. What's going on here is the story of all people, strong and weak, religious and non, good and bad, unifying against Jesus. It's all people aligned against the very incarnation of God's love in the world. All people aligned against. Mark tells us in the story that it's everyone. The most unlikely allies in the world, the chief priests and the Roman military power, unite together against Jesus. No one could have seen that coming The most unlikely allies, the chief priests and Roman authorities align against Jesus. The disciples themselves align against Jesus at different parts. Even the two criminals he's he's crucified with align against him. And if you don't see yourself in any of those groups, had you been there, this would have gone differently. I would have been the one that was on the side of Jesus. Mark makes it clear in verse 29 that those who were just passing by hurled insults at him. What were they making fun of him for? What were they insulting him for? Was it the Beatitudes? Was it because he said some great things and he preached a lot and he was a, he was a good, wise rabbi? Was that why he was hated? No. Those things aren't threatening. They don't get you killed. Something about Jesus challenged the very way of things. His claims bumped up against everyone's way of being. 
And I think it's right there at the end of verse 29. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Well, that's a reference to Jesus' claim that the John, the Gospel of John tells us that he says of himself, destroy this temple, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. What's he getting at there? What is the temple? Well, the temple is the very presence of God. It's the Old Testament incarnation of God's presence in the nation of Israel. It's meant to be the sign of God's blessing to Israel that they are his family, that they are his loved ones. And what are the images that are assigned to the temple? It's to be a house of prayer for all nations. You see nations of all kinds streaming into the temple, coming to bring praise to God. Israel was blessed by God's presence in order to what? To be a blessing to others. Yet... Over and over, the story is different. The temple is used different. The temple becomes a sign of privilege, a sign of us against the them. It was used to separate Israel from those outside. It was used to say that we are the faithful and favored people. We are the ones that God's loved, that God loves. It was used to be against The sign of God's presence in the world was used to be against. But Jesus now comes and he says, he is the temple. That in his life, death, resurrection, he embodies everything that the temple was meant to do and meant to signify. And when God shows up in the true temple, he refuses to be against Jesus says he is the temple, and he embodies everything that the temple was meant to be. Instead of being against, he becomes what? He becomes the ultimate scapegoat. The temple had sacrifices that were meant to be an aroma to God. They were meant to show the the sacrificers reverence for God and devotion for God. Jesus comes, he's the temple, and he has sacrificed himself No more need of scapegoats. He is the ultimate scapegoat for everyone's againstness. He becomes utterly vulnerable to everyone. And he's not, friends, see, he's not just a peace activist that is showing his againstness against the power, against the man, by not acting violently, by receiving blows, by receiving punishment. He goes very far beyond that. He says he is the very temple of God, And his death is not only emblematic of how things are meant to work in God's world, but it expresses God's very character. It expresses who God is. Jesus comes to absorb, to take in all of our againstness, all of our hatred and our violence. He comes to take in and be a sacrifice for all of our superiority, all of the ways that we define ourselves over and against other people. He comes to absorb all the death that we can hand out to him. When the real temple comes, the presence of God shows up. Everyone 
wants to kill him. Everyone is implicated in his death. Flannery O'Connor wrote a short story called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And in it, there's a criminal called the misfit. And this guy has the wild idea of taking a family hostage and killing them one by one. It's a pretty gruesome premise, very Southern Gothic. But he strikes up a conversation, or actually the grandmother strikes up the conversation with the misfit. And the grandmother is pleading for her life. And they have this dialogue. The grandmother is very religious. She's basically saying, you know, if you prayed more, if you um, knew Jesus, if you knew God, you're really a good boy. I'm sure that you're really a good boy, trying to talk the misfit down from this um, murder. And at one point she says, you need to pray to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, Jesus threw everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. And his voice became almost a snarl, O'Connor says. The misfit says Jesus threw everything off balance. And some years later, Flannery O'Connor is writing to a friend, trying to explain this dialogue. And she says of this story, it's a duel of sorts between the grandmother and her superficial beliefs and the misfit's more profoundly felt involvement with Christ's action, which set the world off balance for him. You see... The grandmother, like so many of us, she is religious, she's a nice person, she knows Jesus, but her solutions to the real problems of the world aren't quite fully Christian. She's kind of trying to co-opt Jesus without doing full business with him. But the misfit, this non-religious murderer, he knows the real deal. He knows it's all or nothing. You see, his life has been thrown completely off balance by Jesus. He rejects him, but he knows you can't stay on the fence. The whole way of the world, he believes, if Jesus is true, is upturned. The whole way of being human is turned and inverted. Mark is showing us that in this passage, that those people there in and around Jerusalem understood that. They knew that. They knew that religion wasn't being the nice grandmother who talks about Jesus, they knew that Jesus overturns everything. And they took up arms against him. They aligned with one another against Jesus. They conspired to maintain the status quo, to reinforce their own self-righteousness, to protect themselves, to defend their goodness and strength. Anything to keep themselves from being vulnerable. Anything to keep themselves from having to say, Yes, I need that. Anything to keep themselves above the other and against the other. You see, don't we so often want Jesus to be on our team? For him to be against the same people that we're against? To legitimize our againstness? But Jesus says, no. No. He says he is the new temple. He himself is the new temple. 
And God comes in the new temple of Jesus to say that everyone is equally implicated in the crucifixion of Jesus. Everyone. Not just the people that you're against. But the good news, friends, is not, every, not only is everyone implicated in the crucifixion, everyone is also equally included and invited to participate in the crucifixion, to be on that cross with Jesus. Could it be that Jesus, the new temple, the incarnation of God's love in the world, isn't really against, that he doesn't come against us, but for us, that he comes to get us, to rescue us, to scoop us up out of the world that lives that story of being against, to scoop us up out of our way of death and against us? Could it be that he comes for the poor and the rich? Could it be that he comes for the religious leader and the Roman guard? Could it be that he comes for the crowds? Could it be that he comes for those who love Donald Trump and those who can't wait for Bernie Sanders to be president? Could it be that he really comes for that guy who's flying down your street in a brand new SUV with NRA stickers on it? And could it be that he also comes from the lady in your office who won't stop talking about Black Lives Matter? Could it be that God so thoroughly loves his world and loves the people that he's made and wants to be in relationship with them that he offers up his son as a sacrifice to bridge that gap? That he comes in weakness, that he comes in death to liberate us from all of the tired, false stories that we constantly live by and are captivated by. All of those false stories that we construct our sense of self-worth. Jesus dies to scoop us up into a different story altogether. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love good stories. And we know that this isn't just a good story. That these things are written down so that people that come after, after them would know that this is the ultimate story. That it is the ultimate true story. And that we can stake our life and our joy and our future upon it. Father, I pray that we would, we would come to see that in your crucifixion, you're not coming to convict us, but to liberate us, to set us free, to make us new, that yes, we are woefully sinful people, but you don't let that stand in the way, that you come and pay our debts for us. And then you're resurrected to show us that our following you is not in vain. Our turning to you is not in vain. That you are for us. And we pray that we would live out that forness rather than an againstness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.